Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are at our weakest. On this episode, we're going to be looking further into the raging fires in BC. We also talk about a youth that sued the government over climate change and won. And we discuss the fact that half the people in the world will have mental health issues by age 75. We also learn about a new podcast aimed at helping people cope in the darkest times of their lives. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. I really appreciate you. We have a lot to do tonight. We're going to talk, spend a bunch of time talking about the BC fires and what's going on out there, trying to help as many people that are listening that are affected by it with some update information that I could get my hands on. Although you got to remember, I'm not a news guy, so do the best I can with what we got. Uh, but we do want to hear from you. We'd love you to call in and uh, let us know how you're making out out there, right? You can do that, 877-399-9898. If you're affected by the fire, if you had to move, you're in uh, an area that's being evacuated, you have family, you're from, you know, have family living there, you're concerned about them, we're willing and open and more than um, happy to take your calls and talk to you about what you got going on and if we can give you some uh, some advice as to how to stay calm and kind of keep your keep your head together through it all we're glad to do that too but sometimes just having a place to vent right I understand a lot of people um, are really uncomfortable feeling a lot of anxiety around not getting information not knowing what areas are affected not knowing the status of certain evacuated areas we'll do what we can to try through the news that's information the news and information that's available to us to kind to bring you up to date if we can, at least within the hours of what's been published or put out uh, to the media. Uh, but, you know, I just came from there, man. Like <laughs> my wife and I just spent, you know, two weeks out in the Okanagan Valley and uh, out in, Brit- in that part of British Columbia and Kelowna and Lake Louise and Banff. And, um, you know, we went through Vernon. Like it's, you know, we, we, uh, we were just there like weeks ago, like maybe two weeks ago. And I know of some of the places, some of the resorts and some of the 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 uh, how, temporary housing facilities like um, resorts and certain um, certain of the hotels and such that are available there uh, that are now closed and not able to be uh, to be booked. They, we'll get to it later in the show. There's some restrictions around uh, traveling to that area. It's a beautiful place. Like this is a really beautiful place. If you haven't been to Western Canada, you need to go. First of all, the people are fantastic. And what you see, the rivers, the, the, the lakes, the mountains, the snow-capped uh, mountains, the, the, just the trees. So the thought of the devastation around these trees, around the, the, the foliage, around the, the stuff that, that, that just grows so magnificently there. Not to mention the families and the, and, the, and the properties and the homes and other people that are being you know, terribly affected by all this, right? So it's a very difficult time. For a lot of people, it's a very difficult time for people that are, have to live through this situation. It's a difficult time for people that have relatives and are, have to deal with this from a distance. But, you know, it's, I, I guess, 
I don't know. I guess the, the most difficult thing for someone would be the unknown. I know the fact of uh, a fire and, and the raging of fire. I had a friend of mine call me uh, from there yesterday, from uh, Kelowna yesterday. He was telling me that he could see from his from his home uh, the fires, and uh, they were getting ready to evacuate. He called me later in the day to tell me that the fire jumped the lake from east to west Kelowna or west to east Kelowna, either way. Um, it jumped the lake. I'm not sure how that happens. I have no idea how fire jumps a lake, but man, really scary stuff. Wanted to see if he'd get on the air with me today, but he's um, just keeping his family under control is just such a just such a, a challenge, and he's dealing with his own, you know, uh, situation. Listen, you know, if if you've ever been uprooted, I don't know if you've ever been uprooted. If you've ever been uprooted and had to leave your home, or kind of had to leave stuff behind, and you know, in a hurry like in a hurry, right? That's a big part of it is all of a sudden in a hurry, you got to go, you know, there's some advance notice. It's difficult for people. It's difficult for people to leave their stuff behind. Number one, a lot really difficult for people uh, to get out of their comfort zone. Certainly for me, I don't talk about everybody. I'll talk about me. You know, I, I enjoy the comforts of my home. I enjoy being in my space, even when I travel and stay in nice places and, you know, have enjoyable vacations. But it's not the same as being in my own space. There's a certain comfort that we all enjoy by being in our own place, our own space. So having to be evacuated from that situation, having to get up and go because there's fire looming must be very difficult. I'd like to hear from you. If you got some time to give me a call right now, 877-399-9898. You can also send me a text. We want to hear from you. And if you're out there and you just want somebody to talk to, I'm your guy. So please give me a call. But BC declared a state of emergency amongst these devastated wildfires. And the officials in the province expanded that order late this past Friday. Uh, after declaring a state of emergency in Kelowna, that's uh, if you don't know Kelowna, BC, you got to get there. It's a spectacular, beautiful place. 150,000 residents, uh, as well as nearby West Kelowna, where there's an approaching fire burning through the houses and some of the woodland across the Canadian border, by the way, roughly about 240 miles south of that area in Spokane, Washington. There's also an evacuation emergency level three evacuation order. I mean, go leave now, according to the to that that state's emergency order. People, the management office that are involved in that stuff in neighboring B. So. In neighboring BC, the wildfire season has been the worst, apparently, uh, in province's history, according to the premier, Dave uh, David Ebby. Um, at the news conference, he said on Friday, in just the last 24 hours, the situation has evolved and deteriorated quite rapidly. Um, people are having a difficult time understanding it. And you know what? For friends of mine that have relatives there right now in BC, it's difficult, man. It's difficult to be here and worry about what's going on there, especially when you can't reach people and you can't get the information. So that's part of the problem is you can't, people not getting information, the anxiety that's created around not knowing. You know, we do okay even when we hear bad news. We do. As, as a people, we do okay. You know, we somehow, most of us manage, you know, manage it in some way as devastating as the news might be for, for some of us. We, you know, we, we kind of take it and process it, but it's the not knowing, at least for me, for sure. 
it's the not knowing that makes it difficult. So uh, we appreciate the fact that you're feeling uncomfortable and we're here tonight to do what we can to help you kind of get through that a little bit. Uh, the Provincial Emergency Management, Management Minister, uh, Bowen Moss, said that at least 15,000 people were ordered to evacuate the province. Some 20,000 more were under evacuation alert already. Uh, in a news conference uh, yesterday, uh, I believe that, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Premier um, Premier uh, David Abey said, uh, the worst wildfire season in history. We know that. The authorities are urging people to avoid non-essential travel. We'll get to that later in the show. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, we fought 100 years worth of fires in one night, according to the uh, West Kelowna Fire Chief, Jason Broland. Um one of the people at their best. There's some amazing individuals. There's some very powerful heroes out there right now trying to save the province and save the communities that many of them live in and many of them have friends in. Uh, the warnings in British Columbia were also issued after residents in Yellowknife, much further north, um, evacuated by road and air under an order of the entire capital of Canada's Northwest Territories. Uh, more than 20,000 people to flee the wildfires there. Uh, you know, I just don't know what's going on in the world, but every time you turn around, something's burning, something's exploding, something's burning, something's flooding, something's, you know, tornadoes in places that we don't normally have them, hurricanes in places that haven't had them in years. Something's going on, my friends. You know, I don't know if it's because we're not separating our garbage. I'm not being cute, but, you know, we're, something's happening to the earth and we're slowly, 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 I think, burning ourselves up. We're going to get to a really interesting story here right now um, that, you know, I think what's really important to understand before we get here is that there are situations in life where um, it's almost, you know, unbelievable. It's almost unmanageable to deal with certain information and certain news that you may get about somebody's health. Um, and I find specifically, at least for me, uh, when it's involving children, um, there's just a certain extra tug you know, tug at your heart. And um, the guy that's going to join us right now, he's uh, really one of the good guys, somebody really at their best, as is his organization. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what they've got going on. But before I do that, it's very important, like I did with my producer, uh, it's very important to everybody learn how to clear their throat like this. <coughs> because the organization is called Chai Lifeline. And in uh, what that means in the Hebrew language is that chai is uh, life, right? Um, so when you uh, high, a high number, for example, is a life number, uh, people, when they when they have a drink, will say l'chaim, to life. Uh, so high lifeline, although if you want to call it chai lifeline, they don't care either. But uh, high lifeline is the organization we're talking about in uh, Canada here. Um, Mordechai Rothman is the executive director of high lifeline. Um, he's also a resident in Thornhill and in full transparency knows my wife and my wife is a fundraiser in that in our uh, in the community and the Jewish community raises a, a lot of money for you know for opportunities for kids. Anyway, they, they know each other. She made it very clear to me that this guy is the real deal. So anyway, they've uh, they came up with a, a, a podcast with this guy Brian Strasberg, who's a friend of his, uh, on air with Chai. It's a podcast that they draw on real life work experiences working with terminally ill children, their parents. They bring stories of resilience and inspiration. Uh, Mordechai Rothman is with me tonight. Thanks for joining me, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, 
great stuff that uh, you guys have going on. Uh, for people that don't understand what High Lifeline does, uh, give us a quick uh, scenario of what it's all about, what your mandate is. Uh, so High Lifeline is an organization that provides support to children and families suffering from the effects of serious illness. Uh, we provide 24 year-round supports to children who have diseases like cancer, muscular dystrophy, or children that have parents that are dealing with a life-threatening illness. And we have programs such as a Big Brother program, financial assistance, uh, tutoring, rides. We run a number of camping programs, all free of charge for families that are going through what are some of the hardest things imaginable. So on a day-by-day basis, I mean, you know, um, how, does, how do you manage you know, um, I understand through through learning about the podcast that you share a lot of positive energy, but you're the guy at the head of all of this. And I know there's tons of families that lean on you on a daily basis. Your phone probably rings more than mine does for emergency calls. Um, how do you manage through all of this? So, you know, it's interesting. People ask me that often. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of sadness that I come across. Obviously, when I'm dealing, you know, I'm hearing a family and they're dealing with X, Y, and Z and all kinds of horrible uh, issues and diseases, it's obviously very difficult. Um, but I try to focus my attention on the good that we as an organization are able to provide. And, and to me, that's a very important lesson to, to really focus on. I mean, everybody says, oh, you always have to look at the upside. But really, it's where you put your focus. And if you put your focus on the positivity and the good things, so, you know, there might be a child in the hospital who's going through some of the hardest things imaginable, but we'll focus on, you know, bringing that child a, a brand new toy in the hospital, being able to have a volunteer go and ease the, you know, let the parents get 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 a break and things like that. When we're able to make a difference and really see those kids smile, um, that's that's what it's all about. And, and focusing on that positivity is, is really what gets me through it, through it all. Yeah, I can hear it in your voice. So the types of stuff that you you folks provide, um, like beyond the sort of the camps and the hospital visits and the excursions for the kids that kind of like uh, almost kind of make a wish kind of uh, stuff, right? Like you give uh, these families and kids opportunities to experience things uh, that they may not had a chance to experience. Is that That's correct, right? We're on the same page here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, what, I, I guess a key difference between us and kind of like a, a make-a-wish is that we have what's called case managers who are social workers that are assigned to each family individually and work uh. on a consistent and daily basis. So a family might you know, be going through a really hard time, crisis time. They're constantly reaching out to our staff, sometimes in some cases two or three times a day to help arrange supports, whether it's for the, children in the, hosp- the child in the hospital or the family at home, just different kind of supports to help that family get resilient and get through whatever they're dealing with. Amazing. How, who pays for all of this, my friend? Uh, we have to raise a lot of money. <laughs> we raise a lot of money from the community. We have a lot of relationships with private foundations. Um, we do get some government funds, but minimal. Um, but our annual budget here in Canada is about $6 million. So um, we're providing support to hundreds of families really across the country. Amazing. You know, it's, um, you know, if we think about the kind of money that's set aside by governments to do certain things and to, you know, combat this and to overcome that, um, when you're dealing with, you know, children uh, that are either directly affected by, by God forbid, some form of illness or their families, uh, parents in particular, you would think, my friend, that, that the access to money should be flowing, right? Um, is it not as easy as it sounds? Yeah, no, I mean, particularly right now, 
with the way the uh, I think the middle class is really being squeezed with interest rates, I think uh, we're seeing we're definitely seeing a downturn in donations. Things are things, it's much harder in the economy for us to be raising those funds. I mean, I think you know as far as discretionary funds go, charity um, is is usually towards the bottom of a lot of people's lists. You know, and they have to purchase all kinds of different things that they need. And then, you know, if they have some extra money, they'll give some to charity. So it, I'm certainly seeing uh, a, a downturn in, in, in donations, and it, it's quite difficult out there right now in particular. Is it specific, uh, Mordechai, is it specific to the Jewish community, or is it um, anyone who's um, who's in this you know, our, uh, terrible our situation? Our definitely on the Jewish community, but our, our service is provided with Jewish values to anybody who needs it. Amazing. That's great. Um, so in terms of the parents, right? So let, let's take a situation again, heaven forbids we're in that situation where someone is, you know, got a, a sick kid, a terminally sick kid, one, one form or another, um, parents has to be the, gotta be got like, God forbid, gotta be the worst thing a parent can be told. How do you, how do you deal with those first few hours, days and months when a family first understands that they have a terminally ill kill kid? So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna respectfully correct you. We we never look at a child as terminally ill um, that we're coming across. They they generally have a life threatening illness, but we're doing our best to provide that support. Um, children who have cancer actually have a quite a high survival rate, and they, you know, upwards of eighty percent. So it's just a very difficult, uh, challenging road that they have to take. That being said, um, you know when when I hear a parent that gets diagnosed with with an, with you know, that has a child that's diagnosed, um, they're often in tizzy. They, they just, you know, they don't even know what hit them. And and for us to be able to, to meet some of these parents, um, what I find often is such a consoling thing is I'll sit down with a parent who's just heard this horrible news and say, we have an army of volunteers at your beck and call. All you have to do is tell us what you need and we will be there to support you. And and th- it's true because we have literally, yeah. th- and I will say, thousands of people across the country who are willing to step in and support families when they need. And we're able to put together a very comprehensive support support system for every family that works very. We work very closely with them to be able to do that, and okay. it's all volunteer driven. A lot of nice high lifeline people would come and cheer me up with like board games, toys, like my little pony figurines. One thing I really remember was donut, and it made me feel hopeful. That's the voice of a little girl who was three. Talks about how High Lifeline gave her hope when she didn't have any. My guest is Mordechai Rothman. He's executive director of High Lifeline Canada. Thanks again for joining me tonight, Mordechai. Um, the um, we, we were talking quickly. Be, uh, I, I had to cut you off because we were going to pay some bills here. But um, we were talking a little bit about sort of, uh, and you corrected me, which I really appreciate. That kids today, what you said, most kids today that are diagnosed with cancer have an eighty percent um, survival rate. Um, that's phenomenal. So, so the job, I guess, for you is not so much, um, you know, helping people sort of work through. God forbid, end of life stuff. It's it's really just kind of how to live with what you got moving forward. Correct. Most of what we do is that. Correct. Most of that is helping families uh, understand their new normal. Um, obviously, there are times when, unfortunately, the worst thing does happen. 
Um, and when that does happen, we're, we also have grief counselors that are trained on, on how to deal with some of those things as well. Um, but for the most part, most of the children that we're coming across and we're meeting, uh, you know, while, while they might be sick in some serious way, um, and even the kids who have cancer, for an exa- as an example, um, a lot of them survive, but they still have long-term effects from the yes, chemo and things of that nature. Um, so we're providing a lot of support to those families. Um, Amazing. Tell me a little bit about the podcast. Um, you know, I, I, my, my wife, who, who you know, in full transparency, she says she saw it, saw, heard it, and, and thought it was wonderful. I haven't had a chance to, to listen to it. Tell, me, tell us a little bit about this podcast that you've started. Um, I believe, uh, I'm trying to get the name of it here. Um, it's called On Air with Chai. It's available on Apple uh, Podcasts. Uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or online. By the way, if you want to make a donation, Chai Lifeline, C-H-A-I, lifelinecanada.org. Love to have you uh, send a little bit of money, makes maybe uh, help them out on a, on a bike run or a bike ride or something like that. Um, tell me about the podcast. What, what is it aimed at and, and uh, how did you get it started? So, you know, we felt that at Chai uh, Lifeline that we had just some really powerful stories to share um, we have some incredible staff that work throughout the organization. Uh, we come in contact with some of the most incredible and top researchers in various different medical fields. And we felt like we have a lot to share with the world, and we're not doing enough of that. So we decided to start a podcast, um, and now it's it's going on its second season. Um, and the, the the point of the podcast is really to give people who aren't necessarily affected uh, with any serious illness within their lives. Um, but there's a lot of lessons and ideas and important things that can be learned from people who are going through some very hard times in their lives. You know, that resilience, that strength, um, or even uh, when we're talking to researchers, the creativity or the ideas, and just, just being able to take some of those things and apply it to your own life uh, we found has been extremely beneficial, and, and we've gotten a really, really warm reception to uh, to some of these ideas. So um, we want to continue to share those ideas through our podcast. Amazing. you got a great voice for radio anyway, so I'm sure it's wonderful to listen to. Um, it, is it designed – so the – the design, or the, or the really the the story behind the podcast, for the most part, are, are they are they intended to be feel good feel good stories? Are they are they intended to be you know like we do here on our show here? We try to you know make sure that we we add in feel good stories so people walk away with, um, with hope with hope and a smile. Is it that kind of stuff or more researchy sort of stuff? So I I would say about eighty percent of it is is more um, hearing stories of resilience of how, you know, how a mother has learned to deal with the loss of her son who died through cancer, um, how a clergyman um, comes to terms with the fact that his child is sick and perhaps has long-term effects from that illness, how, you know, how he comes to terms with that through his faith and through God, um, and, and, you know, how that might be a struggle for him, and he, you know, things of that nature. Uh Really, so I would say 80% of it is that, and you know, obviously there are times when we were able to connect with. Um, I think we had we had uh, Dr. Khan, who's the CEO of Sick Kids, 
And it wasn't so much research that we discussed with him per se, um, but a lot of business ideas, how to run a massive organization like Sick Kids, the way he is. Uh, and, and those ideas and those, I guess, even the creativity that it takes to really do that um, are some of the underpinnings of that episode. So really taking the knowledge that you can learn from these types of situations and being able to apply it to your own life. And, 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 and you don't have to, again, you don't have to have somebody who's sick in your family to really learn or appreciate that. People go through hard things every day that are small or large for them. And this can, you know, the idea of the podcast is really that we can, we can be able to learn from those, those hard times and perhaps apply them to our lives. How uh, how big an audience do you get from time? You know, like on a on a on the regular on an average, how, how many people actually tune into this um, or or download it? Or are you able to figure that out? At this, at this point, you know, we're just starting out, so it's a few hundred per episode. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our hope is that we're gonna we're gonna really grow it out there and share it. And 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 one of the things I love about this medium is it's out there and it stays out there. So mm-hmm. you know. People, you never know when people are going to start to pick it up and really take a listen and really learn. Um, the point is, though, that we have this just great and really, really educational, really helpful stuff to anyone who's going through some of the hardest things in their lives from people who have gone through some of the hardest things imaginable. You should check it out on air with Chai, C-H-A-I. You can get it at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or online at Chai, C-H-I, lifelinecanada.org. And I can tell you that there are tens of thousands of people listening right now. So hopefully you'll beef up that audience if we had our way. We'd uh, we'd feed you all kinds of people to listen. Um, let me ask you some questions, some personal questions, before we, we let you get back to, uh, back to the things you do. Um, the smile on kids' faces, how does that make you feel at the end of the day? Is that not really what drives it? You know, what drives it for me is, um, you know, one of our flagship programs is a call, is a camp. And the mm-hmm. camp is in upstate New York, actually uh, in Glen Spay, New York, which is right near where Woodstock happened. And mm-hmm. um, I've walked into the hotel, the hospital rooms of children who are going through some of the hardest treatments imaginable in the dead of winter. I'm talking February in Toronto and it's cold and on their wall are pictures of camp and all they're looking forward to is that experience or that opportunity to be able to go back to camp. Um, and our camp is a special place where we can give chemotherapy on site and it's just, wow. it's an, you know, it's, 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 it's a real amazing, incredible camp. Um, kids wow. can order whatever they want for any meal. We do helicopter rides, hot air balloon rides. It's a real wow. over-the-top experience. But um, to be able to walk into a, a hospital room and see on the wall just those photos of that kid with their with their fellow bunkmates and counselor, I know that we're you know we're onto something because that's that's helping that child get through that hard time. That's what they're thinking about. That's that's you know they're looking forward to something like that, and that's that's extremely powerful to me. And that that just that's what drives me. 
Well, uh, Mordechai Rothman, he is the um, CEO, uh, or, excuse me, Executive Director of High Lifeline Canada. I uh, appreciate your time, my friend, and uh, you're definitely uh, positioned as uh, someone definitely at their best. Uh, appreciate what you do. I'm sure everyone appreciates what, the, what you do. And uh, may you continue to have the strength to continue to do what you do. And uh, we'll talk some more. When you have some other interesting stuff, let us know. We'll get you back on here and we can chat. So uh, High Lifeline, High Lifeline. Yeah, thank you so much. High Lifeline, folks. That's where you want to get to online. Have a listen to this thing. Uh, the podcast is supposed to be really incredible. The stories are really uplifting. Um, thanks again, Mordechai. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. talking about wildfires tonight because so many of our listeners and my friends are in Western Canada that are experiencing this. And we have so many pals and friends here in Ontario and Quebec and um, uh, Manitoba as well that also have, you know, friends and relatives out that way. So uh, that's what we're talking about. It's a bit of a, bit of a disaster going on and we're trying to a human thing, right? I mean, the trees and the woods and the, and the buildings, that's certainly a part of it, big part of it. I mean, let's not, kid ourselves there's huge financial loss here but at the end of the day it's the human piece right it's the one that certainly i sink my teeth into and we look at the effects that this has on people um when feeling uncertain when feeling you know unsafe when being in a situation where you're not sure if you know some of your worldly possessions you know people that i talk to over the years that have had you know devastating things in their life and, and fire is one of those devastating things and i've had patients over the years that have had that have been victims of of uh, of a home fire or you know fire where there perhaps loss of life and um and you know what they, they the people that i talked to that had to rush out of the buildings that were on fire or had caught fire or that, you know they to prevent someone from getting hurt as the fire began their biggest concern were things like pictures you know those 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 valuables if you will that were personal items you know, the fear of losing your home and leaving behind, you know, pictures of your mom and grandma. I mean, you know, in my house, in, in, in my in my condo here, we've got, I don't know, my wife, Pumpkin, she's got to pro probably have, I don't know, 17 or 18 albums. Remember albums? Oh, photo albums? Yeah, we have photo albums. We have a bunch of digital stuff, too. But we've got, you know, all these photo albums of uh, pictures that are irreplaceable. We don't have digital copies. I mean, we keep talking about getting them digitized, right? Sending them out and have somebody digitize them. Uh, but, you know, leaving those things behind, you know, little little trinkets, little, you know, certain, certain um, you know, figurines and I don't know, little, little things that I, I can think of probably 30 things in my place that I would want to grab ahead of my clothes and my toothbrush and all of that, right? Um because those are certain things that I have in my life that are very meaningful, that give me inspiration, give me hope, give me strength. And the thought of having that not around anymore, being lost in, in a disaster, a fire, a flood, a hurricane, a tornado, that, that I think is, is for most very, very scary. Let, let's hear let's hear from um, I have a clip here. We're talking about uh, the army of people that are out there in spite of this fear trying to help and make a difference. Have a quick listen. Uh, we didn't see the dramatic, you know, glow in the sky necessarily in as many places as we had the night before. So I guess if you could call that a reprieve, it was, but don't think for a second that it wasn't in totally unprecedented last night after a totally unprecedented day of firefighting yesterday. 
We're talking about the army of crews that are across BC, you know, amid the devastation on both sides of the Okanagan and West and East Kelowna. Um, it's long lasting. It, it scars the community, according to Jason. Not according, it does. Uh, that's what he said. He quote was quoted Jason Broland uh, during a, um, a regional update, and he's one of the uh, uh, fire chiefs. He is the fire chief in West Kelowna. Um, I've already seen how the community is coming together. A lot of good work is being done. We're an army out here. And that's really what I'm talking about. It's the community coming together, the strength that you're able to, to find in real times of need. That's what makes us so special as human beings. That's what makes this whole concept of, of humanity uh, and, and, and the way we live our lives um, and what, how we give back and, and what we do when our neighbors need us. That, that's what, that's, you know, I always said to people, you know, people used to talk about Canadians and, you know, when I lived in different places or traveled across the world. And, you know, one of the things I would pride myself on in being a Canadian is we're always there for each other. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen elsewhere in the world, but, you know, Canadians for the most part, in my experience, are pretty, are pretty selfless when we need to be. And, you know, this, um, according to this fire chief, Jason Broland, again, there's 41 departments, fire departments across BC. They've sent a, a personnel and equipment to fight the fires in central Okanagan. And, you know, they've lost some structures. They've lost some, uh, you know, they, they've, but, they, you know, they've done pretty well to try to maintain, you know, safety uh, for people who, you know, are, had to evacuate, manage that they managed to save as many structures as they could in the, in the, in the, uh, in the path of the fire. Sometimes, you know, I, I'm not an expert in fire to say the least and don't want to be, but um, when it gets out of control, it's, it's very difficult to bring it into control. And these folks are experts at digging ahead, uh, creating trenches and all kinds of, of, of um, uh, ways to, uh, to not distract the fire, but sort of, you know, derail it, um, you know, direct it in a different direction, right? Uh, but they managed to save the Rose Valley Water Treatment Plant, which is a $75 million facility. It's about to go online in the fall, and it would have been pretty messy had that thing uh, caught up. But according to the Kelowna Fire Chief, um, his name is Travis Whitting, um, he says crews continue to work hard on the uh, Valro Lake Wildway, a wildfire, excuse me, have a significant amount of fire activity. But it's not just the firefighters that are out there. If you remember show last week, we talked to an expert on the preparedness of, of this kind of stuff and the people that are out there making sandwiches and, and, and you know, making, putting up, putting up camps so that there's a nice warm bed to come back to if you've been out there fighting fires and, you know, there's food for them and a place to have a hot shower um, and, you know, some form of, of communication, telephone, video connection to their loved ones. But that's the biggest part of this, right? Is that when people come back, when 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 the firefighters and and the, and the smoke eaters that are out there doing their jobs, when they come back from this stuff, um, you know they see a lot of devastation, right? It's it's talk about post traumatic stress. It takes a certain kind of person to come back from being in the midst of 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 life threatening fire and watching the trees and, and watching the, 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 the surroundings and nature take a beating. And, and not to mention, you know, I'm sure there's firefighters on, a, on the regular that, uh, you know, get hurt and, and have issues and smoke inhalation, burns, um, you know, issues with broken bones as a result of things falling or you falling in the midst of fighting a fire. But it's the people behind the scenes that we don't spend enough time talking about. 
you know, the firefighters get their get their their kudos as they should, and the those that are the first responders they should. But it's I'm always I'm always you know, trying to provide some, some highlight or some spotlight, if you will, on the people behind the scenes, what it must take to be in a camp waiting for your firefighters, your hard workers to come back and you're there, right. Trying to make their lives a little bit better, trying to provide for the necessities of life, trying to provide for some form of, of civilized, um, retreat, reprieve, place to kind of you know get your get yourself together and and, and you know try to overcome whatever is uh, whatever's kind of got you go you know kind of got you got you down right um, and having people around is important. What I, what I suggested and, and what I was hoping we'd hear more about with weeks to come is the implementation of someone who can help them understand the mental health ramifications. You know, someone that's got the ability to listen, social workers, peer support workers, retired firefighters that can be around to kind of just listen to stories, someone that can, you know, hold you when you cry. If, you know, firefighters cry, I'm sure they do. And, you know, if you're not able to get to your family and you're not able to get the hugs and the snuggles that you need to help move forward, who's providing that? Well, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we have a whole team of people hugging them hugging folks out there, but certainly the warmth of being able to listen. I'm sure, you know, there's there's clergy deployed. If not, they should be uh, to provide uh, some prayer if someone's, you know, uh, looking for a spiritual, um, you know, um, support of some sort. But, you know, I, I, it, it, kudos to the heroes, to all the heroes. My, my, my hat goes off. My, my, I'm so proud to be Canadian when I hear about those folks that are out there working so hard to keep everyone safe and then those behind the scenes that work hard to keep those that are providing everyone with safety, their own safety and comforts um, that are, you know, part of what goes behind um, this whole process. So we're going to continue to talk about these fires throughout the course of the, of the evening as we get uh, early morning, as we get closer to the end of the show, we're going to invite uh, some calls uh, from you all to uh, share your thoughts. If you uh, are out there being uh, uh, in any way impacted by these fires. We want to hear from you. You want to send messages to people through the airwaves here. We're glad to pass messages on for you. Or I'm just glad to chat with you for a minute and tell you I care. And then I can send you a virtual hug and let you know that we, we are, we're behind you if you're stuck in a bad situation. And um, yeah, man, it's a difficult time, but we all are here together. It's, I would like to say we're in it together, but we're not. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not smelling smoke. I don't have to deal with that. But in my heart, I'm right there, and I know that the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of listeners that are out there are all sending prayers uh, to those that are out there that need them and to those that are continuing to do the hard work to support them. And um, I just want you all to know that, you know, you never know when this can happen in your own backyard, right? Like I said, I was just in this area traveling and vacationing two weeks ago. I never even would have thought that fire was an issue, even though we could smell smoke, right? Uh, still in BC, we were smelling smoke a couple of weeks ago uh, up and around the areas I was in. Uh, but who thought that that was going to turn out to be a big deal and that people were going to have to be evacuated? Interesting story here. So a lot of young people in particular have issues with mental health around um, around uh, the climate and climate change and uh, all the things that are happening within within the our world as it relates to the environment, all the environmental uh, situations that uh, we're trying to fight and fight back against and and get some control over. So you know, a lot of young people feel like this is under out of under out of control and out of their 
control to try to make any change, at least at this stage of their lives. Um, many of them are starting to fight back in some way, right? Creating uh, opportunities for um, rallies and they and, and being parts of of movements, youth movements, uh, to try to let the adults in the world know that they're not standing for it anymore. And you know what? It's, it's a big part of how you start to feel better. When you're in a situation where you feel like uh, things around you are running amok, as they say, you know, things are just out of control, wildfires and, and tornadoes and hurricanes and all kinds of stuff happening in the world uh, that, you know, many uh, will point a finger at our environmental changes, our, our unhealthy environment as we're moving forward. And, you know, that this is resulting in all kinds of, of uh, you know, world um, disasters everywhere, fire, water rain, uh, tornado, like I say, wind, these kinds of things, um, waters that are hotter than they've ever been, where people are swimming in waters that, that they claim is as warm as their hot tub. Um, so, you know, a lot of young people are, 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 are now fighting back. And that's how we feel better is, you know, how do you become, how do you change from being a victim to an advocate? which is really the, the the concept here is to advocate for yourself, to push back, to to get involved in, in creating some voice to say, this isn't fair, this isn't good, this isn't something we're going to stand for anymore. Being able to be a part of that process is is one of the ways we heal when we feel that we're out of that life is out of control around us and we need to fight back in some way. Well this kid, these kids sued uh, the um, Montana government. A Montana judge on Monday sided with young iron environmental activists who said state agencies were violating their constitution, right to a clean and healthy environment by permitting fossil fuel development without considering its effect on the climate. Have a listen to what this uh, lawyer in the U.S. says about this ruling. What the case means is that the Montana government can no longer stick its head in the sand and ignore the climate impacts of the decisions it makes in regards to fossil fuel extraction. So this is, uh, that was uh, Michael Berger. He's a climate change lawyer. Um, he's trying to break down what the ruling actually means. It's a landmark case. The Montana state courts ruled in favor of 16 youths, 16 youths who sued the state uh, claiming its fossil fuel uh, fossil fuels violated their right to a clean and healthy environment. Uh, the judge on Monday, this past Monday, sided with the young environmentalists. Um, and uh, the ruling is the first of its kind. Uh, it's the first time of the trial of this nature. Um, it adds to a small number of legal decisions around the world, an established government duty to protect citizens from climate change. Um, the district court judge, her name is Kathy Seeley, found that the policy policy the state uses in evaluating requests for fossil fuel permits, which does not allow agencies to evaluate the effects of greenhouse gas emissions, ruled as con unconstitutional. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's a lot of young people out there that are, excuse the expression, pissed off with the way the adults are treating our, our planet. And I was just thinking if a whole bunch of them got together, there are 16 people here that were 16 young people that were part of this lawsuit. But can you imagine thousands or hundreds of thousands of young people in any country at any given time to get together and create some kind of class action lawsuit and sue for hundreds of millions of dollars? What that would look like, certainly in more litigious countries like the U.S., where these kinds of lawsuits are a little easier to bring, maybe than uh, bring forth than that may be in other countries. But you know what? Good for them. Like, I don't know how you feel about it, 
I'd love to hear what you have to say. We're going to take some calls um, in a little bit uh, towards the end of the show. The last couple of segments, we're going to invite you to call us at 877-399-9898. I want to just hold your thoughts on what you think that might look like, right, in terms of, of you know young people getting together and challenging the government in a real way. And as far as I know, the best way to challenge adults is in their pocketbook uh, in terms of, you know, how you want to make change, especially governments. You know, if there's something that's going to affect, um, you know, their, their, you know, kids all, all of a sudden, you know, started to line the streets and, you know, boycotted, you know, certain their families boycotted uh, purchasing things and buying things and going to different, you know, different retail outlets and, and different um, uh entertainment uh, scenarios, uh, facilities, and so on. If we fought back, right, if they feel if they feel like they're winning something, like this particular um, group did, um, they won. This is a, a big, huge, this is like a huge um, uh, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's a, you know, it, it, it's definitely a, uh, a precedent. That's the word I'm looking for. It took me a minute to find it. Um, it it's a precedent, right? It, 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 it's something that's that you can, people will point back at now about this, a point back on this Montana ruling as, you know, an indication of what happens when a bunch of young kids get together, young people, not kids, young people get together, youth get together and say enough is enough. And these challenges are going on around the world. Um, and in countries that are um, democratic, they're, they're, they're heard properly. In countries that are not democratic, some of these young folks are being jailed and, and persecuted and prosecuted for their actions. So I, I think this is I think this is a great a great start to something. I think when young people stand up and say, we've had enough, we're not doing this anymore, we're not allowing this to happen anymore, don't do this anymore to our planet, I think that's a good thing because it gives them the sense of feeling like they're making a difference. Right? And I'll tell you, when they evaluated this policy, they evaluated requests for fossil fuel permits um, without really considering considering anything. So now the kids, are, now these young folks have stood up. I keep calling them kids. They're not. Listen, at my age, everybody looks like a kid. Um, but the, 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 I'll tell you, the flip side of this, Emily Flowers, she's a spokesperson for the Montana Attorney General, uh, Austin Knudsen. He's the attorney general there. The creed, the ruling is absurd, criticizing the judge and said the office planned to appeal. The ruling is absurd, but not surprising from a judge who let the plaintiff's attorneys put on a week-long taxpayer-funded publicly pub publicity stunt that was supposed to be a trial. Well, publicity stunt or not, it was effective. They got the results they were looking for. Attorneys for the state of Montana are, see are seen before a hearing in a climate change lawsuit held versus Montana at the Lewis and Clark County Courthouse. Um, attorneys for the 16 plaintiffs ranging in age from 5 to 22 presented evidence during the two-week trial increasing um, in, in, in the trial was in, in June that increasing carbon dioxide emissions are driving hotter temperatures more drought and wildfires and decreasing snowpack those changes are harming the young people's physical and mental health according to experts brought in the plaintiffs and when we come back from break uh, we're going to talk about mental health in general and how in time here half of the people in the world, uh, at the by the age of 75 will have some form of mental health issue it starts at a young age it starts when you're a kid and um, it's this kind of stuff right it's climate change and environmental issues that most kids are worried about if you ask them you know what your biggest fear is they talk about not having enough money to buy a house not being able to you know find a uh, get a good job get a good education um, and they're concerned that the world's not going to be around as we know it today 
by the time they get to an age where they may be, you know, saving for the future, planning for the future. Many don't think they've got a future. So when a kid can, when, when young people can fight back, when anyone can fight back and push back against what they believe to be um, uh, something that's unfair, something that, that, that is harmful to them and that people aren't paying attention to their needs, I think that's a wonderful thing. And uh, in our society, the more that we can empower people to push back a little bit, gives them strength, helps them deal with their own anxieties and lack of confidence and security. I think this is, uh, we're on to something good. I think young people need to stand up and challenge us. And if they need to do that in a courtroom, I think that's awesome. We're talking now about um, half of the world people in the world developing mental health conditions by the age of 75. You know, if you're thinking about what's happening with the fires around the world, uh, fires in particular in Western Canada, which we're talking about specifically tonight um, to, to, give it, 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 to give it its due, I think it's something we need to talk about together as a country, especially right now. Um, people are having a hard time coping. Coping with all kinds of stuff, right? Coming through the pandemic, coping with the future, coping with when the next, you know, people tell me they have horrible anxiety, but when the next pandemic might hit. You know, we're, we're, you know, there are, are many people who have an expectation that this will be, again, something uglier, something more devastating, something more deadly. Are they right? Are they wrong? I don't know. I, I have no way to predict that. But I can tell you, living in a way, living like that, right, with the expect, expectation of something horrible or something ugly to happen, isn't healthy. It it's not healthy. It's not good for your sleep. Not good for your for your appetite in terms of your nutrition and the way you eat. It's not good for your productivity. It's just not good. Not good to have you know stuff you know fears of the future when we know we can't control what's going to come. So all we have to do is be better prepared mentally, better prepared physically, so that in any event that things you know come about, that we're in a position to handle ourselves um, differently perhaps than we were before. A lot of, a lot of resilience, a lot of new strength were, you know, people developed a lot of new strength and, and a lot of different uh, tools uh, during the lockdown periods and, and, and subsequent months um, and year to follow, um, which I think was, you know, puts us in a better position moving forward. If you, if you get your head into a place where you realize how strong we were and how strong we are and how we're able to come through these kinds of things pretty relatively unscathed. Yeah, we lost a lot of people. Uh, but for the most part, in terms of what was happening worldwide, I think in Canada here, uh, we, we, we came out pretty much, you know, uh, better than most, I think. Uh, certainly in Ontario, where I am, <clears throat> the numbers were fairly, um, were fairly um, low compared to worldwide numbers, uh, Canadian numbers overall. So we, we did what we needed to do. We have that kind of strength. But by the age of 75, half of the people worldwide can expect to experience a mental health disorder, according to the finding of a large study. This was 156,000 people studied across 29 countries. It was published last week in the Lancet Psychiatry. Uh, that's a very well-respected, recognized publication. And they, they analyzed answers that participants provided between 2001 and 2022 in response to a World Health Organization survey. And it was designed to assess the prevalence of major health concerns and disorders, mental health in particular. The study focused on 13 common mental health disorders, including major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, substance use disorders, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. And what they found in that study 
was over 29% of male respondents and 30% of female female respondents reporting having had at least one of the mental health conditions in the 10 years prior to when they entered and, and answered the survey's questions. So the lifetime risk that a person would develop a mental health condition by 75 was 46% for male response, respondents and 53% for female ones. And the researchers estimated this based on the respondents' experiences with uh, the people responding with their experiences with disorders, the ages at the time of the survey, and so on. And the risk of occurrence, if, at all, if all respondents lived for 75 years. So that's okay. And the mental health issues typically emerged early in life, according to the study. For the first onset of mental health disorders, the peak in, uh, incidence was at the age of 15 or so. And the median age of onset was around 19 for male respondents and 20 for female. So by the time someone turns 20, half of those will have event eventually developed some form of mental health disorder or have experienced some symptoms, right? So mental health disorders are identified, according to this study, uh, as chronic disorders um, of the young. So that's according to John McGrath, a professor at Queensland Brain Institute in the University of Queensland, and the lead author of this study that points to the need to adopt early intervention. Okay, so we know that, right? We know that we need to adapt and, and, and adopt early um, early techniques and early, uh, um, uh, I guess, diagnoses, if you will. Uh, we, obviously, we need more people. We need more mental health experts to be out there to help identify and assess and evaluate um, folks that we can jump on this earlier, uh, sooner than later. So if it's so when um, if it's if if a disabling illness like anxiety, a social phobia, or a substance use, they found that the domino consequences across a range of adverse health consequences. Right. So anyone who's dealing with anxiety, social phobias, and substance use, and so on, they're they're, they're definitely having physical issues, not just mental issues, and they have adverse uh, health outcomes overall. So the finding expanded uh, on two, in 2007 uh, World Mental Health Survey, uh, 85,000 people in 13 countries, and we found the same thing. So compared to the 2007 study, and we look at it today, uh, the numbers are up. So for male responders, the disorder with the highest, for the people that had the, the thing that made people the sickest uh, was alcohol abuse, followed by depressive disorder, followed by various phobias. Uh, for women, the, the major condition was major depressive disorder, followed by specific phobias, like I don't like heights, I don't like elevators, and this and that. Post-traumatic stress was huge. Uh, the study also found that women had a much higher prevalence of anxiety compared to men, almost twice as much. And men had a much higher risk of developing an addiction compared to women, almost uh, 50% more. So we're finding that through all these studies that we recognize that our state of mental health worldwide especially amongst young people, um, is, is predictable. Like we, we are predicting what I, what I called two years ago uh, a mental health pandemic, which makes any other pandemic seem like nothing. Because we, have, we will have in this country uh, probably a, a third, so 10,000 people, 35,000 or so people, I believe, living in Canada, over a third will have some form of mental health disorder between the ages of 15 to 75. And many of them will experience those disorders early uh, in their life, in their teens and 20s, so that we have to recognize the support that's required, I would suggest, at the secondary, at the school level, both any um, 
second any any level of, of public education uh, high school middle school public school uh, grade school i should say um and for sure in any kind of college or university setting and and there are i mean in, in certainly in canada here we have a fairly decent um, mental health and social work team in pretty much every major university and college you just got to be able to access them. Um, they're not always available. There's not that many people around. So we need to we need to intervene early if we want to help someone, help people gain um, the ability to deal with the stuff that they need to deal with so that doesn't haunt them later on in life. That's how you keep your mental health under control is by dealing with it, right? Unpacking the baggage, so to speak, so you can move forward. Um, but if we don't get this done, like poor kids turn to, to adults, it's hard to turn back when you're trying to create a family and have a job and make a living and pay a mortgage and all that stuff. Um, very important that we catch it early. So post-secondary for sure. Um, high school, absolutely. Middle school for sure as well. So um, we need to do a better job catching this stuff early on so that these young people have a chance going forward. 